Welcome to our week. Welcome to the beginning of our week. Uh, It's our Monday Scramble. We're going to spend the first two segments of the show today on one topic, and that is the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, And then towards the end of the show, we'll sort of move on to slightly more cheerful terrain. Um, Not that this has to be, you know, irreparably grim anyway, but uh, more cheerful terrain. We're going to talk about this uh, massive PBS documentary. It's a two-part American experience documentary about the life and times of Walt Disney, who, by the way, was not all sweetness and life and joy and all that. The apostle of fun that he appeared to be. But anyway, that is uh, later. Now is now. Uh, Joining us right now is Ellen Ballard. She is the uh, co-founder and executive director of Road to to Mafrock. And uh, also Chris George, executive director of Integrated Refugee uh, and Immigrant Services in New Haven. That's Iris. Uh, We're going to start with Ellen. Actually, Ellen, I mean, the reason I even know that you exist is that you called in uh, to another show that we were doing that we were where we were talking about the Syrian refugee crisis uh, and uh, mentioned, in fact, your group at the time. And I made a mental note. uh, And um, I I, well, first of all, let me just say one thing, which is sort of to set the stage a little bit. So, I mean, it's very difficult to get really hard counts on all this stuff. But somewhere around four million Syrians uh, have fled the country since the war began. uh, And somewhere around eight million more have been displaced from their homes within the country. So that's you know, it's a 12 million person problem. It's not going away. It's not this year's problem. It's not next year's problem. It's a decade long problem at at minimum. Uh, And it's a problem which hasn't really been matched with the resources that are needed to address the problem. I mean, there's just the what's on the table as a way of dealing with this problem is so puny compared to the gigantic size of the problem. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that, but also just sort of about um, how to understand it in more human terms. And also, and I'm kind of doing double duty today, too, because (laughs) I was tasked uh, by my church, by my pastor, to, well, bring back something, bring back something to tell us about what we can do. So I uh, hope at the end of that conversation, the end of this conversation, I'll have a better answer to that question as well. So, um, Ellen, I'm going to start with you, um, and and I think it's actually sort of worth it to spend a moment telling your story. This isn't necessarily something that you prepared all your life to get into, right? You just, well, what happened? How did you suddenly become involved in the plight of Syrian refugees? Yeah, that's a great question, Colin. Uh, I am a social worker by background, um, but I hadn't necessarily planned to work with refugees. And uh, it's really interesting. My husband and I, we were living overseas at the time, and uh, this was about three years ago now. We, just like all of you out there listening, had seen it happening on the the news, and we wondered, you know, why isn't anybody doing anything about this? Um, You know, so many people are displaced. So many people are dying. And finally, after asking over and over again, you know, why is no one doing anything? We decided, you know what? We have no excuse. We can do something. And so we decided to, to raise some money and uh, we traveled to Jordan, um, connected with some awesome grassroots uh, groups on the ground there. We raised $5,000 at the time. We went. We thought that'd be the end of it um, and that we had done our part. But while we were there, we got to stay uh, with a Syrian refugee um, the whole time we were there. And his name was Maher. And uh, we just really became close friends with him, and he shared with us his story. And after that, we, you know, it was no longer something that was happening on the news to other people. It was having, happening to somebody we knew and somebody we cared about. And so we knew that we had to continue doing what we were doing. And, and so we came back to the States, and uh, we've started a, a nonprofit called Road to Mafrak. And uh, Mafrak is a town on the Syrian border, northern Jordan. Um, it's about 70,000 Jordanians normally, and it's about 70,000 to 100,000 Syrian refugees living there now on top of that population. 
And so we met with refugee families there, and one by one they shared with us their story of leaving Syria and what they'd been through. And we just came to realize that, you know, their road to Mafraq, it was physical, and they were safe now in Jordan, but their journey was far from over. And we wanted to partner with them on that journey. And so that's what we're doing. And our primary focus right now is to, to increase access to education and health care for Syrian and Iraqi refugees in Jordan. And uh, we're working to expand into Lebanon as well. So you've um, you started this, what, about two and a half years ago? Yep. And you've been going back and forth since then. Correct. So um, I assume you're watching um, a bad situation deteriorate. My sense of these kind of first stop countries like Jordan mm-hmm. and Lebanon, places where refugees stop maybe on the way to someplace else, maybe not, is that they're bursting at the seams right now. That's a great way of saying it. They're bursting at the seams. Jordan uh, is a country of about 7 million people normally. They have about 700,000 registered Syrian refugees, but it's it's really well over a million. Um, and they're traditionally a very, uh, you know, gracious uh, host country. They um, have, you know, welcomed refugees for decades. And for Jordan to really be uh, taking this on um, and for Lebanon and for some of these other countries, it's, it's really more than they can bear right now uh, in terms of uh, their economic se- uh, security, their, um, you know, their physical security. It's... It's really um, a very deteriorating situation. As we go along here, Ellen's going to kind of give us a sense of what she's seen on the ground, uh, some of the failures, some of the successes. Um, as we add Chris to the conversation, we're going to talk more about uh, what's happened here uh, in the U.S. in terms of U.S. policy, what can happen, um, what successes there are, there can be in terms of resettling uh, refugees here uh, from this rather small number, which we'll also talk about, uh, of a small approved number of about 10,000. So all of that's ahead of us. If you have your own questions, feel free to tweet us at WNPRCollin, WNPRCollin. Our tweetmaster, Greg Hill, is in the house and ready for you. And uh, you can also call us at 860-275-7266 if you're listening to the show at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Don't call us at other times. No one will be here. 860-275-7266. So I'm I'm wondering first of all, Ellen, about mood. You go back and you were there fairly recently, right? Yeah, I came back uh, a couple weeks ago. Actually, was there in August. And and I'm assuming now, as opposed to two and a half years ago, you're talking to people who are starting to see this as a permanent situation rather rather than a transitory one. Yeah, it's been a really interesting progression. When we first went about two and a half, three years ago, uh, we sat down with refugee families and they were much more hopeful. You know, we sat down, we shared tea with them and they were like, you know, inshallah, God willing, uh, we'll have you as our guest in our home in Syria soon. And uh, now it's it's much more hopeless. Um, Most of them don't really have a, a hope to return to Syria um, especially if Assad is not res- removed from power. Um, groups like ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra and what they're doing is also making the situation even more bleak for them. But I think from the family's perspectives, you know, their homes are gone, their families have fled, they're all over the Middle East now, they're all over the world, um, or their families have been killed. There's relatively few schools, hospitals, or jobs available to them. So, you know, even if they want to return, they feel they have little to return to. And I think one uh, man really summed it up well, um, just the the gravity of the situation and the hopelessness. Um, last time I was there, he's about 50-something years old, and um, he said, you know, in Syria, I was a lawyer, mm-hmm. and here I'm not even a human being. And uh, so I think, yeah, there's definitely a sense of growing hopelessness. This weekend, we had a, a fundraising event for our organization, and um, there was a Syrian family there. And I met with this woman, and she she gripped me by the hands and pulled me close. And she said, 
I wish you could have known Syria as it was before. It was beautiful and we were not like this. And uh, yeah, so I think people are just feeling more and more hopeless and uh, they'd love to return if if that was a possibility, sure. So, so you're working with sort of indigenous NGOs there, Gra- right? Yeah, grassroots community-based organizations. Give, give us a sense of one or two of those groups, uh, how you found them, what they do. Sure, yeah. Um, well, first one that I found, I I Googled it. You know, I Googled <laughs> helping refugees in Jordan. I was desperate to help, and, and this is what popped up and turned out to be a really fascinating, awesome group of individuals um, that we work with. Um, they kind of uh, serve as a conduit uh, through, for different community-based organizations throughout the country, um, connecting them with different supplies that they need. Um, uh, but we also work with uh, different community organizations. We work with um, a local Jordanian church that's helping to meet the needs of Syrian refugees. Um, we meet with a, another organization um, based in uh, Amman uh, that has worked with Iraqi refugees actually since 2003, and they've had a lot of amazing programs they're doing there. Um, so these programs aren't uh, working just to meet basic needs. Um, certainly, that's part of it. Uh, it's that's never going to go away, especially as more of the international aid dries up. But we're partnering with organizations that are focusing on longer-term development. Um, with these refugee communities because we all kind of realize they're going to be, uh, you know, they're going to be in Jordan for a while. They may never be able to return to Syria. And if that's the case, they're either going to stay in Jordan or they're going to wait to transition to to another country where they can be resettled more permanently. The situation in Jordan is even more complicated because they're actually not allowed to legally work there. And so, you know, if they can't go back to Syria, then, of course, they want to go elsewhere because they want to be able to work. They want to be able to provide for their families. So uh, people hear about this and look, it is. It's a four million person problem and maybe a 12 million. It's probably a 12 million person problem. It's, yeah. a, it's a long term problem. So that seems a little overwhelming and it may seem to people like, well, there's you know, what what can anyone do? So give us a success story. Give us a tell sure. us a story of something that worked. Yeah, um, I think a, a great story that that comes to mind um, and kind of the way that the way I tell people, you know, they say, how how can you really sleep at night, you know, knowing that these numbers and how, how big the situation is? Um, the way I do it is I measure it one life and one family at a time. And one of those lives and one of those families is the story of Ali. And uh, their family was fleeing from Syria, and uh, it's a family of about mm, seven or eight. And the mother was, uh, I think, pregnant at the time, too. And they were fleeing across the Syrian border, and they were actually captured. And Ali, at 15 years old, was shot in the head. And um, they were actually put in jail for a while back in Syria. And then um, a couple of days later, they were able to, to be released and uh, they headed back toward the Jordanian border. And this time, fortunately, they made it to safety. But in the meantime, you know, Ali had a head wound um, that had not received medical attention. It had just been plugged with a cotton ball for three days. He'd been shot. Yeah, he'd been shot in the head and, and they'd plugged it with cotton. Um, and so so he came over and he was able to connect with help over in Jordan, uh, in northern Jordan, and get um, medical treatment. And he went through so many surgeries uh, on his brain. And uh, we met with that family and uh, Ali's father, he was so proud that, you know, what that his son had had been restored, um, that he pulled out the MRI results and, you know, showed us the progression of all these different surgeries. And, and Ali was the boy who served us tea. You know, and so I think that's a, that's a really good success story, but we also can't stop there. So Ali's wound was healed and taken care of, but there's, this family is also facing, you know, just a continued situation of what do we do for education? What do we do for work? 
And um, so Ali's journey is far from over. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of what we're doing, we're really pouring our efforts into um, into schools. We work with a number of different schools across Jordan that, um, you know, some of these kids haven't been to school in really close to four years um, since they left Syria or since they had to stop going to school in Syria. And so we're working to get those kids plugged back into to some form of education so that they can have hope for a future. And uh, we're doing that through our Wings for Dreams campaign. Um, Wings for Dreams. Wings for Dreams. And uh, so when we meet with the kids, we say, you know, what's your dream? And uh, what what do you want to do? If you could have anything in life, what what would it be? And some of them uh, choose to tell us, you know, I want to be a doctor or something like that. And um, one situation that that stands out to me is a, a young woman. She was 15 years old. And I said, what's your dream? What could you if you're tell me what you would want your life to look like? And instead of saying, you know, I want to be something when I grow up, she she said, I want to be surrounded by beauty. I want to be around grass. I want to be around trees. I want to be around flowing water. I just want a life that's beautiful because I've seen so much. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing in the, in the camps there's very little beauty. Uh, sure, in the camps, yeah. And, and actually that's another kind of interesting nuance of the situation. You know, most of the refugees aren't actually in camps. Mm-hmm. And so the refugees we work with – are not in camps. They're living out in the communities in Jordan um, where they're facing a number of other issues, including rent that's increased by sixfold since mm-hmm. this all started. Um, but yeah, so she's living, this girl's living out in the middle of nowhere in the desert pretty much um, with little hope for an education or a future. And she just wants to be surrounded by beauty. All right. Well, we're talking right now uh, to uh, Ellen Ballard and uh, her group. Uh, she's the co-founder and executive director uh, of Road to Mafrak. Uh, we're going to add to this conversation uh, Chris George. As I said before, Chris George is director, uh, uh, in- executive director of Integrated Refugee and Immigrant, Immigrant Services in New Haven. Uh, so, Chris George, welcome to our conversation. And I know you and Ellen will probably have some things to share back and forth uh, between you. Uh, but I want to begin just by saying, obviously, one of the things you do is help uh, immigrants uh, relocate. In the case of the Syrian immigrants, it seems as though the thing you need to do first is get it to be okay that uh, Syrian immigrants can come here. 10,000 uh, bodies doesn't sound like very much to me. Right. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Ellen, I want to applaud your work in, in Jordan. I, I worked many years in the Middle East, a lot of it in refugee camps, and I know the organizations out there do excellent work, and I really have great respect for people who, you know, get up and leave things here and go out there and help people in need. So um, I just want to say thank you very much for that great work. I work on the other end uh, with refugee resettlement, and in a way, refugee resettlement is kind of a last resort. Um, Refugees would love to go back to the country they fled, um, and maybe we should stop for a second and and define refugee. It's someone who has been forced to flee their home country because they've been persecuted, because of their race, their religion, nationality, social group, or political opinion. So these aren't people who say, oh, you know, I just want to have a better life and a better job somewhere. They are facing persecution and were forced to flee their countries. So that's a refugee. And You know, the first choice would be to go home. Maybe the next best thing, if it's possible to integrate into the country they have taken refuge in. And then there is a third option that's open to just a tiny fraction of refugees, and that's called resettlement. And every year the U.S. government identifies about 70,000 refugees from all over the world, not just the Middle East, and gives them a thorough background check 
health screening, interviews them, and then we'll invite them to come to the United States. They're placed with one of 350 refugee resettlement agencies like mine, like IRIS in, in New Haven, 350 spread across the country. And we have been doing this work for, you know, 30, 35 years since the Refugee Act and since it was organized by uh, the U.S. government. Many of us have been doing refugee resettlement even longer. So there is a mechanism, there's a network in place to resettle refugees, and that's what's just so infuriating, frustrating for us, Colin, when we see that, you know, we've got this enormous humanitarian disaster out there, and the U.S. government's response is so small and timid. Um, I mean, Senator Chris Murphy has joined a group of other senators and is finally talking about some numbers that are closer to what uh, the scale uh, of, of response should be, which is 65,000 Syrian refugees should be brought to the United States over the next year. Uh, my organization is actually calling on the U.S. government to go from 70,000 to 200,000, and that's what we've done before, 1980, with right. Vietnamese refugees. So it is possible. The network is there. We can expand and welcome and resettle refugees the way we've been doing it for years. Um, we've got community support. We're all well-established, connected, supported, agile, nonprofit organizations. Let's start processing them and bringing them here. Connecticut will play its part. Right now we receive about 550 refugees. These are all different nationalities in Connecticut. Um, we're ready to see that doubled, and IRIS would play its part. I'm getting calls and emails from all over the state, from organizations, from rotary clubs, from mosques, churches, synagogues, all of them offering help. So we can do it. We just need the political will and the decision to begin the process, gear it up, and respond to this crisis the way we should. I'm going to uh, take a break right here. Before I do, I just want to say that, um, first of all, uh, we're going to have the websites for both of these organizations that are represented here on the show. They will be linked up to uh, on our show page so that you can find them. Also, on Chris's site, there's um, some really helpful reading uh, for me. Uh, there's uh, other organizations that are doing other kinds of work out in this area. Uh, and so there's links to that, too. And it, uh, there's a lot of information out there, a lot of it very interesting. And there's also... Uh, links to explain exactly how it is that you could make your voice heard a little bit more in the political structure here in this country in terms of getting that refugee number raised. So uh, let's take a little break, a little pause for reflection. We'll be back in just a few seconds. Give us a call, 860-275-7266 if you have questions, or tweet us at WNPR Colin. All right. Uh, we're going to spend another segment here talking about what uh, we can do, what the United States can do, what people listening to this show can do uh, about the Syrian refugee crisis. I know you've been listening to a lot of reports, reading a lot of stuff, maybe watching stuff on television, and you can start to feel kind of helpless. This looks like a situation that we ought to do something about. Uh, but what exactly is that? We've got two uh, organizations represented here, Road to Mafrak uh, and then IRIS in, in New Haven. Uh, each of them has ideas uh, about what what you could do. Well, um, Ellen uh, Ballard from 
um, Rota Mafrak. I want to go back to you for a second because one thing that we didn't really talk about, I was asking you about the mood among refugees in Jordan, but there's another mood that's important, uh, another temperature it's important to take, and that is uh, of jo- the Jordanian hosts. In other words, another the country itself, which has its own uh, problems, its own fragile political structure, um, and so absorbing 700,000 or more refugees into that and making the country feel good enough about it so that uh, they don't change their policies is a whole other task, I assume. So so how is that shaping up? How is the situation among, on the Jordanian side of that question? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think that um, it's certainly gotten more tenuous over the past couple of years. Um, one thing that, that has happened that has had a direct impact on the Jordanian population, as I've alluded to earlier, is just the cost of living increase. And so in Mafraq, for example, small town on the border of, of Syria, in northern Jordan, um, rent has increased by sixfold. And that's for, you know, your everyday Jordanian has to pay that as well. So if they were paying $50 a month, they're now paying $300 a month. And in addition to that, they're, you know, they're not seeing more jobs. And in some cases, they're they're losing their jobs. Um, and so I think that's caused a lot of animosity. It's straining the economy. Um, kind of on the flip side of that, I guess, I mean, there's, there's increased needs for certain items, um, clothing, uh, food. So some grocery stores and uh, clothing sellers have have seen a lot more increase in uh, their business because of the refugees. But obviously, that's temporary and it's not very sustainable. Um, I think one of the biggest impacts uh, that's that's hit Jordan is um, just its impact on uh, the tourism industry uh, by having all the, the refugees coming in and then also just kind of talk of ISIS. I mean, I think if you watch the news um, at all, it, it really does kind of seem like if you go to the Middle East, uh, something very bad will happen to you, which is really not the case at all um, and is certainly not my experience. But nonetheless, it's hurt the tourism industry, which was their primary driver of their economy. Um, so all of this combined has really... Uh, kind of um, started to strain not just, uh, you know, the government, um, but but the people themselves and kind of their attitude to, to having refugees coming in. I would assume that one way of putting a little bit of balm on that wound would be, and I know I think some of the NGOs you work with do this, um, direct some services to poor Jordanians Correct. in addition to, uh, you can yeah, say something about that. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it, I, I can't be quoted directly on this, but I think from my understanding is that there's now kind of a policy that says if you're working with Syrian refugees or Iraqi refugees, you now have to devote at least 50 percent of your funding or your programming toward Jordanians themselves. Um, so, you know, all of the organizations we work with as well, uh, you know, they, they're directly trying to help Jordanians too and, and certainly not discriminating in that regard. Um, and we don't want to do that either. You know, we, we've met with Jordanians who've said, you know, we were poor and struggling before this happened. Why did nobody care about us? Why do you only care about the refugees? And so we want our message to be, uh, you know, no, we, we care about those who are in your community. And that's locals and that's refugees. And so we're here to, to do our part in supporting that. So, um, Chris George, I'm going to play just a little bit of uh, White House spokesman uh, Josh Ernest talking about the problem uh, in the way that you referenced in the previous segment. This kind of financial assistance is by far the most effective way for us to meet this urgent humanitarian need. That said, uh, the president has directed his team to consider how we can further scale up our response. 
you know, Chris, I mean, the problem here is, as you alluded to, this, you know, our, our refugee policy isn't a straight line. It, it's a roller coaster. It's a continuum. And so, yeah, in 1980, it was up over 200,000. In 2002, which was right after 9-11, it dropped to like 27,000. We just like weren't taking refugees because who knew who they were? And really, the I think you could argue that the political situation here, you know, hasn't really kind of reset since that time. I mean, the refugee numbers have gone up, but uh, certainly not up to 1980 levels. And there is this constant drumbeat of xenophobia and fear. And you're starting to hear uh, people like Peter King, Congressman Peter King, saying, well, we can't let these people in. They might be terrorists. Uh, The Islamic State kind of ratcheted this up a little bit, too, by saying they were going to try to insert uh, terrorists or or moles or something like that into this refugee uh, population. So how do you overcome that kind of uh, paranoia and suspicion uh, as you argue for a lift in the limits of Syrian refugees? Right. Well, a few things. We, we, we first begin by reminding people that this is probably our oldest, most noble national tradition. Let's not forget that. The Statue of Liberty is its symbol. Uh, Einstein is refugee resettlement's poster child. Um, this is what defines us. This is what makes us proud, bringing in refugees from all over the world. So we have to have a robust refugee resettlement program. I mean, even when our economy is down, uh, we still need to have a refugee resettlement program. And when people say, you know, we shouldn't be bringing refugees until we can take care of all American-born people, I say we, of course, have to help people born in this country. Absolutely. For every refugee resettlement agency, there should be a 1,000 nonprofits that help the general population. And in Connecticut, there are probably 2,000 for every refugee agency. So we need to do both. It's not either or. So that's one point we make. About the fears, we agree 100% no refugees should be brought here without a thorough background check. Department of Homeland Security handles that, and we would never suggest that shortcuts are made or that you know we, we bring people without check. Um, what we're saying is put more resources into those background checks. Hire more people to conduct them. Um, open up more offices around the region so more people can be processed. Um, there are, you know, you mentioned the number at the top of the program, 4 million refugees from Syria. I am sure the U.S. government can find 65,000 who will pass a background check. Let's gear up, get it started, select the people, and invite them. Um, you know, even Donald Trump and, you know, My staff laughed when I mentioned this at staff meeting. Even Donald Trump said we should be accepting Syrian refugees. He said, you know, I'm uncomfortable bringing foreigners in, but, you know, for humanitarian reasons, we need to do it. Which reminds me and all of us that this is a tradition that gets broad and strong bipartisan support. I mean, it's worth driving home. Uh, There probably is nobody who is no incoming person who is fly specked more carefully. It's subject to more background checks than a refugee. Refugees have to be screened by the National Counterterrorism Center, the FBI Terrorist Screening Center. They collect biometric information about them, biographical information. They get put into two or three significant intelligence databases. I mean, really, if you wanted to sneak a terrorist into the United States, trying to do it through the refugee resettlement program would be the dumbest way he could 
could possibly. I mean, that terrorist would be really easy to find. There must be. I'm sure there's lots easier ways uh, to get your mole in, into a place like this. Um, you know, Ellen, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, and this this does come up a lot in the debates, or just uh, people asking questions about it. That there are Arab states nearby that that don't really have a refugee uh, program, whether it's uh, UAE or Qatar or this or Saudi Arabia. They'll put money into this, uh, and sometimes quite a bit of money, uh, but they won't accept refugees. What's your thinking about that? Yeah, I, I, I unfortunately, I don't feel like I'm an authority on mm. on speaking as to to why. Um, I have been witness to um, several ways in which they have helped out in Jordan. Um, I, I think that one thing I've observed just traveling in some of those countries is that. You know, they have a, a huge um, migrant population. And by that, I mean actually migrant workers, um, not refugees. Uh, and so they kind of outnumber the the local population um, and they're kind of having some problems because of that. I think that's one thing. I think there's a lot of political uh Things going on, and uh, I don't I don't feel adequate to, no. to address those. Anyone but, that spot. but it but it certainly is um, curious. So. And Chris, in terms of um, refugees that you will eventually be resettling in Connecticut, um, we don't have a lot of time left here. But maybe you could just sort of give us give us in a minute or two what that process is. In other words, uh, let's say a Syrian family comes through your pipeline. Where do they wind up? I mean, how do they get resettled? Great. Well, I'll describe it quickly, and listeners can kind of figure out where they might be able to plug in. We get an email about two weeks before the family arrives. We have to quickly find an apartment. We have to furnish it with donated furniture. We don't go to Ikea with $4,000 and buy brand new stuff. No, it's all donated furniture. We find volunteers who help us um, uh, fix up the apartments. We've got volunteers out in the New Haven area today, right now, as I speak, setting up apartments for arrivals that are coming tomorrow night, including a Syrian family. The uh, case manager has to find someone in the neighborhood who can cook a culturally appropriate hot meal to serve this family soon after they arrive. We meet the family at train station, the airport, or a limo station. We get them settled in their apartment. The next day we bring them into the office. The case manager sits them down and says, here is the program. It's a tough, demanding self-help program. You're going to have to hit the ground running. We'll help enroll your kids in school. We need volunteers to help with that. We will teach you English. We need volunteers to help with that. We'll help you find a job. We need people to help with that. We're going to connect you to health care. If your family has been divided and separated, we'll, we've got legal services that will help reunite you. And we've got to do all of this very quickly because we don't have that much money. The government sprinkles a little bit of funding on these programs. It's intended to leverage a lot of private assistance, and it does. In fact, it's probably the best use of tax dollars. Uh, it's a strong public-private partnership. So through volunteer help, material donations, financial donations, you know, we bring in a lot of private support from the community to supplement the government funding and it works. And before you know it, people are getting jobs. They're able to cover their rent. They're able to, um, you know, the, the kids are learning English. They're able to win academic awards in, in school. They'll move to another apartment. We've got all sorts of success stories, you know, not just here in Connecticut, but across the country of, of refugees, you know, going on to becoming engaged and contributing 
members of the community. That is great. It really okay, is it, one of the best things we do. Very quickly, and like very quickly, Ellen Bellar, yeah. because I'm under the gun right now. But yeah, quickly, three ways that people can help. Yeah, I just want to follow up on, on everything that Chris said. In addition to that, you know, the first thing you can do is give money. Uh, it goes a long way. We just, uh, for less than $4,000, we just sent th- uh, 37 kids to school this summer uh, for one whole year. If you don't have money to give, you can absolutely fundraise, help send Syrian refugees to school. And the last thing I would say is just please don't forget about this next week. You know, this is right. kind of the, the talk of the day, but but these families are still going to be in this situation next week. And, and just please keep them on their, your hearts and minds in whatever way you see fit. And thanks for your time. Ellen Ballard and Chris George, thanks so much. Uh, we'll shift gears uh, and talk about the rise of the Disney empire after this. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Deborah Timms, Zachary LaSala, and Amanda Gallagher. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Julie Andrews. For show pages and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff dressing Cinderella for the ball, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, we catch up with some of our former guests. And now, back to Colin. So we all grew up pretty much in the arms of this man or in the hands of this man, Walt Disney. And yet probably, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm of an age to have really lived many, many decades under the spell of Walt Disney. But I can't really say I knew all that much about him until I watched this new documentary, Part of the American Experience. It's going to premiere tonight and run over two nights uh, at 9 p.m. on CPTV. And we have here with us the director and producer of the American Experience, Walt Disney. That is Sarah Colt. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be with you today. I'm going to tell you some of the things that surprised me, and then I want to hear some of the things that surprised you about this. I think for me the biggest surprise, in a way, is that Walt Disney's career more resembled one of the rides at one of his theme parks than just the steady upward ascent of an escalator. And I didn't get that. So in the first episode, we see kind of the centerpiece of the first episode is him kind of doubling down, betting his, you know, his whole stash really on Snow White. He's going to do something really new, this feature film. Nobody's ever done anything like this before. There are delays. There are questions. Can he possibly deliver this product on time? He finally does. It's this huge huge hit. It kind of remakes the whole landscape of what anim- animation can do, what film can do. Uh, it makes insane amounts of money. And there's a little kind of, you know, cylinder clicking over my head going, OK, so he's all set. The escalator Jeep just keeps going up after that. And Sarah, it's not that way at all. No. And I think that that's one of the really surprising things about his career. And I, I would parse it this way. Number one, Walt Disney didn't care about money. He cared about money only to fund his next idea and his next big project. So he certainly wasn't in it to get rich, and he was willing to spend everything he had um, and mortgage everything in order to fund whatever his next big idea was. And then also, just as you point out, it was a real roller coaster, and they needed money, were desperate for money, and begging for money, really up until Disneyland becomes a success. So that's up until 1955. And Walt Disney's name, I mean, he became a famous person in the early 30s with Mickey Mouse. So that's 25 years of a real roller coaster, as you point out, in terms of finances. 
And some of this has to do with his determination to hew very closely. I mean, he's a real study in contradictions. We'll come back to that. But to hew very closely to certain artistic visions. So he's just not going to compromise. You know, he's going to make, with all the success that he's got from from Snow White, he's going to make Fantasia, which is a big risk. And he's going to make Pinocchio and, and Dumbo. And these are, you know, once again, artistic risks. They're visions that, that as I think one of the animators or somebody in the documentary points out, they don't look like each other either. It's not like he just took the thing that really worked and then did it again a slightly way. These are all very, very different departures. And some of them really are not commercial successes. I mean, Pinocchio and Fantasia don't help him at all. Exactly. And, you know, what's interesting is that even early on, you know, he hits big with Mickey Mouse. There's no question. And Mickey Mouse becomes this huge celebrity and does make a lot of money. But then Disney turns around and says, I want to start another series of cartoon shorts that's going to be more avant-garde and more cutting edge and more experimental. And he's pouring lots of money into producing these shorts, and he's spending more money than he's actually being paid for the shorts. And so that's, I think, what you can then say about the feature films that come after Snow White. He gets money to make those films, but then his vision seems to always outpace the amount of money that the bank is willing to give. And so his brother Roy, his sort of long-suffering older brother Roy, who has to keep going back to the bank to get more money, has to get, you know, additional funds to make these films. So they end up spending a tremendous amount of money on production that they're then unable to get back at the box office. And for Pinocchio and for Bambi, that has a lot to do with World War II and the fact that there's less of a market for movies at that period because the European market has shut down. You know, Fantasia is a whole other story. So they have a problem with Fantasia because, again, Disney's so determined to have a certain sound system to listen to Fantasia <laughs> yeah. that only a few theaters can afford to put it in. Right. That one blew my mind, too. So you mentioned Roy. This is one of the really uh, one of the many paradoxes in this story that Roy, as you say, is very long suffering and downtrodden in certain ways. And very early on, it stops being Disney Brothers and it becomes Walt Disney. He just rips Roy's name right out of the company. And it's he's very much my way or the highway at critical junctures. He'll just sort of say to Roy, look, either just do what I'm saying right now or you just go leave or something. On the other hand, Roy really does save this company more than once and certainly after the strike when he when Walt goes to South America to heal from this kind of breakdown he's having not after the strike during the strike it's really getting him on a different continent is almost essential Roy's ability to save the company in his absence I think that's absolutely right I mean Disney is passionate about what he's doing he can be completely blind to what's going on around him and his brother Roy is much more pragmatic and even keeled. And in the story of the strike, he really, in some ways, needs his brother to get far, far away so that he can do what needs to be done to settle the strike. Roy comes to understand, even though Roy didn't want to settle it, he understands from a business perspective he needs to settle it. And so throughout the partnership, Roy is really a critical member of the team. And in many ways, you know, you really have to give Roy credit for Walt Disney's success. It's the younger brother Walt's vision and innovation and passion that, you know, brings all of this to life. But if he hadn't had Roy, I'm not sure we'd be talking about him. So uh, let's look at another one of the paradoxes. Uh, As you say, in some ways, he seems like he's not very concerned about money, uh, at least, you know, amassing a lot of money for himself. He's willing 
to, I mean, not that he lived a Spartan existence, but he's willing each time to bet the entire stack of chips on his next vision, and even including, as you say, chips he doesn't even really have, on, on an artistic vision. On the other hand, he becomes somebody who's kind of quintessential paranoid captain of industry who, after the strike, becomes freaked out by communists and, and a little bit of a Red Scare participant and testifies in front of the HUAC. And I mean, he kind of turns into this the kind of person you do turn into if you're a capitalist who's really worried about money and you think communists are going to take it away from you. I think you're right. I mean, it's a good point. And I think what's so transformative for Disney is the strike that happens at his studio in 1941 when his animators and artists, not all of them, but a a large number of them go out on strike. And Disney just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand how it could have happened. And there were a lot of things that he did personally and were happening at the studio that led to the strike and could have been averted. And the strike, you know, there were lots of moments when it could have gone a different direction if Disney had done different things, maybe taken different advice and listened more carefully. But he doesn't. And he takes that strike so personally and he is so betrayed by it that it really changes who he is. And what I think is really interesting is that he creates this studio that he wants to be this utopian place. And he builds this incredible campus in Burbank, which is, you know, still the houses the Disney company now. And it is a really fantastic place. But it changes things because the, the company has grown and it just becomes much more corporate. So that when Disney starts to uh, get the idea for Disneyland, what he does is he starts another company, and he starts a little small on the side at the back, in the back lot kind of company because he can't do what he needs to do as a corporate boss. You know, he needs to be, you know, sleeves rolled up with a bunch of guys in the back trailer doing something exciting in order to achieve his next big vision. So uh, our producer Tucker Ives really saw a lot of parallels between uh, Walt Disney and, and Steve Jobs, who would eventually become the company's largest uh, shareholder. To me, I saw a lot of parallels to Charles, Charles Foster Kane. And maybe that's a little bit of who Disney is. He's kind of a fusion of Steve Jobs and Charles Foster Kane. But for me, what I really noticed was, first of all, that the early psychic wound, a really bad uh, and, and uncertain relationship with his father, a relationship that's so bad that when his father dies, Disney's in South America, it doesn't even want to come home for the funeral in a very pointed way doesn't want to come home for the funeral and there is that sense that this apostle of joy this apostle of happiness for america is at some level not really capable of the kinds of happiness that he's marketing that not that he's you know i mean he plays polo he does all kinds of things but there's a little bit of a sense that joy is a very very hard and high bar for him to clear well, it's really interesting because when you know when you read descriptions of him as a kid, he was really extroverted and lots of fun and loved to make jokes and he liked to dress up and he actually considered becoming an actor, you know, early on in his life. He loved acting. And so there is something in Disney that I think is very childlike and he stays somewhat connected to that, I think, throughout his life. But there's no question that what you describe is there, that there's a darker side to him and that much of his desire for a fantasy escape, a place where you can go and forget the troubles of your everyday life, you know, that comes, I think, from a really personal place. And so he's getting as much joy out of his movies and out of Mickey Mouse um, as I think 
the people and the children who lo- love him and love the love the movies. And then there's no question that Disneyland, you know, he loved Disneyland more than almost anyone else. He spent a tremendous amount of time there. He would spend the weekends there with his wife Lillian. He had his own apartment there. He loved just walking sort of incognito through the crowds and listening to what people thought and improving the rides, but also taking the rides himself. So it's an interesting thing where he's he's really creating these spaces, I think, to help himself in some ways. Oh, we're talking to Sarah Colt, a director and producer of American Experience, Walt Disney, which is premiering tonight at 9 p.m. on CPTV, which I believe is a TV station located in this building. So the other thing that I, other paradox I'd like to explore with you, I mean, we're not going to talk through this whole thing because people have to get, watch it and be surprised and find, make their own little discoveries about it. So back to the Steve Jobs thing. So they're, simil- they're similar in the sense that they are visionaries, but they are these kind of, they're, they're kind of imperious. It is kind of my way or the highway. They're controlled freaks, except that ultimately they have to learn something else or or even learn it by accident. And I thought it was very interesting that, you know, kind of in between Snow White and Cinderella, the company's not really doing very well. And Disney gets distracted by a whole bunch of things. I mean, he won't listen to anybody about stuff. He makes kind of a huge sort of social error with Song of the South, where he recruits black intellectuals to kind of brief him on, you know, how this needs to play out and then completely ignores their advice and makes this movie that some people still find uh, rather offensive, you know, stuff like that. And then he gets interested in these kind of large gauge little trains and starts building these little trains. And while that's happening, Cinderella is finally completed kind of by other people and without his control freakery. And and it actually gets the company back where it needs to be. You know, that's a really interesting um, sort of transition that happens, which is that the movies and the studio they move forward, and Disney, you know, he always has some control. I, you know, he's reading every script. He's okaying everything. He was very involved always in the early stages with a script, and then he was heavily involved in post-production. But he starts to let other people do the directing and, the, you know, the producing of the actual film. So with Cinderella, as you say, he's not really very involved. And that becomes true with many of the films that come after Cinderella, both the animated features and the live-action features. So he always has his hand in everything, but he kind of lets go and he lets the product, I think, in some ways, you know, he's not as careful with it as he is with, you know, Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Bambi. And it does change, you know, what they're putting out. I mean, the thing that's so interesting about Disney is how productive and prolific he is. So even in the period that I kind of like to think of in a way as sort of Disney's wilderness period, sort of after the war and before he starts working on Disneyland, he's still producing a, an amazing amount of material and entertainment. You know, he gets into nature dec- documentaries. He's fascinated with television and definitely sees there's a future in television very, very early on, way before a lot of other people. So it's, it's really interesting, that aspect of his, um, you know, he does let go a little bit with control, but he also is very involved. With the nature documentaries, I thought one of your commentators commented rather mordantly that he liked the idea because seals don't go on strike. Um, I, I have to say I love that comment. <laughs> it's very funny. So, so very quickly, Sarah Colt, how difficult a thing is this to do? I mean, basically, you're taking 
one of the most intact show business and corporate legends in America. One of the last companies, big companies that bear somebody's name. Everything else is is ESPN and Viacom and stuff like that. And this just halcyon brand name. And you really do want to kind of probe around in a little bit and sort of see, you know, what where the bright places are and where the dark spaces are. How difficult a thing was that to do? Well, you know, it was, a, it was a big topic. It was a daunting topic and an exciting and challenging one. I mean, the key to the project was that we were able to get the Disney company to let us into their archives and let us use not only his films within our film, but also all the documentary evidence of his life. You know, the many, many, you know, uh, thousands of photographs, which many of them are owned, most of them are owned by the Disney company. So we got that um, that go-ahead, and that was key to this project. And it was key that they also agreed to let us have full editorial control so we could figure out the story we wanted to tell. And, you know, what I'm hopeful of is that when people watch, they will, you know, whether they're great lovers of Walt Disney or whether they hate Walt Disney, they will learn about a human being and a person that, as you say, was full of contradictions and really, at the end of the day, was a fascinating person. And um, I think people hopefully will walk away recognizing he's not just a myth and a legend, but actually a person and uh, hopefully be entertained as they go along. Right. As you say, love him or hate him. There's something for everyone. It's just like Disneyland. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, yeah, absolutely. I I have to say I was riveted by this thing. I mean, I I grew up certainly with the Disney culture like everybody else. And so it's kind of interesting to watch the footage dropped in among some of these more gritty uh, stories about how things came to be as they were. Sarah Colt, great to talk to you. Uh, Everybody else, watch this thing tonight. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And we're also going to say goodbye right now because, in fact, our show is over. So oh, I wish I knew the end of the Mus- the Musketeers song. Now it's time. To uh, I don't know it. All right. So that's the kind of preparation that I just failed to do today. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with another great show. Thanks to Tucker Ives, Kion Wolf, everybody else who helped out. Now it's time to say goodbye to all our soon. Why? Because we like you. And-